love is my jailbreak, I'm going free.
this mountain top, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step with us, kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way.
May they encourage us. May they build us up. Most of all, God, may we connect with you, Lord, as we lift up your praise. Show you how much you mean to us, God. Father, I pray that also that the words we sing would be an encouragement to those needing it. Lord, we know at some time in our life, all of us will be in a dark valley, a place of hurt, a season of, of sadness, God. But we know that even, even through the hurt, when our heart may not feel you, we can trust in our head in the promises that you are truly with us, God. We can breathe in your grace, Father, as we walk through those valleys. You're beside us. You go before us, Lord. You're waiting there for us to take our hand, Father. May we be encouraged this morning, God, as we praise you and lift up your name. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Spring. It's good to see you this morning. I'm Dan Kubish. I'm the children's pastor. And first thing I want to tell you, uh, coming up on the announcement video, you'll see this. But if you are interested in taking Starting Point, there's a table right out here in the foyer. And as you ex exit, you can talk to those wonderful ladies and gentlemen about going to the Starting Point. Great way, great way to ask your questions about the faith. And uh, we want to highly recommend that to you. But why I'm really up here is uh, we have got some great news that we want to tell you that we're always excited about. Last week in kids ministry alone, in kids world, we had 50, 50, five, zero, uh, 50 kids show up for the very first time last week. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And not only that, I oversee from eighth grade all the way down to babies, uh, but in our middle school ministry, which is fifth through eight, called The Wire, and Daniel Mahana leads that, they had 20 first time middle schoolers show up last week. Isn't that amazing? That is. But here's the thing. Uh, at best, our ratios are 1 to 10. Now, when we get in the younger age, they get down to about 1 to 4. So out of that 70 new kids that we have last week, that means we need seven new volunteers just to keep up with the growth. And we average, just so you know, we average from 8th grade down to Baby Bay, we average 42 and a half kids visiting for the very first time every week. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. But that means, that means every week we need four people to step up and say, I would like to help Mr. Dan impact the next generation of kids coming up. And so I want to give you that opportunity. If you want to go out in the hallway after church gets done, Jonathan says amen and dismisses you. If you go out in the hallway, you'll see some signs highlighting the hallways all the way down, and they say volunteer training. And if you go back there where Adventure Avenue is, my wonderful wife is there along with some of my staff members, and they would like to hand you an application and talk to you about helping in kids or even the wire ministry. And it operates every hour. And if you do, they're going to give you one of these kids, uh, Kids World calendar, desktop calendars, super cool, handcrafted by the kids of New Spring, and they're going to give you that absolutely free. It's a $3 value if you have to buy them at the bookstore, but it is free for those that make that trip. Now, maybe you're just too busy. Uh, you could fill out the count, uh, the count me in card or the, the bulletin uh, card back there that says, I would like to serve in a ministry, and you can check the boxes that you'd like to serve in. Here's the thing. You might say, Mr. Dan, I do not like being around kids. Uh, we understand that, all right? But there's other ministries that you can do that doesn't have kids involved in them. Like you can be a first impression person. Uh, those people that are going to come down right now and take the offering. Or maybe you like to make lattes or smoothies or help with tech. Uh, fill out that card because here's the thing. To reach more people in South Central Kansas, 
we have to have more people stepping up to the plate and serving at New Spring Church. We just don't want you to be consumers. We want you to be able to set the table for someone else, just like someone set the table for you. All right? So ushers, come forward. We're going to take our tithes and offerings. This is what makes the ministry happen around here. And while we do that, you guys watch this video. In just a moment, we'll be hearing a message from God's Word. So please silence your cell phone or any other electronic devices you may have. Also, if you have a child in the room that may cause a disturbance or if you need to have a conversation with someone, please step out into the foyer so others can concentrate on the message without distraction. Registration for Summer Camp 2014 is now open for kids, middle schoolers, and high schoolers. Each age group will enjoy an experience designed just for them. Kids World Camp will happen July 1st through the 3rd at Sky Ranch Camp in Quapaw, Oklahoma. Rewired Summer Camp for middle schoolers will be June 2nd through the 5th and will include outdoor activities, great worship, and a message from God's Word. High schoolers, the Fuse is going to Kansas City for some theme park attractions, live music, plus much more on July 28th through the 31st. You can register your child and find out more information at newspring.org slash summer camp. Starting Point is an eight-week small group that provides an opportunity to explore faith in a safe, non-threatening environment. In fact, no question is off limits. If you'd like to learn more about it before you commit to a group, attend a Starting Point orientation on March 1st and 2nd, where you can meet the leaders and check out the materials with no obligation. Just let us know you're coming by registering at newspring.org slash starting point. New Springs Ministry for Middle Schoolers, The Wire, is adding a 5.30 p.m. service to their regular Saturday service times. So, beginning March 15th, your middle schooler can attend The Wire at 4 and 5.30 p.m. on Saturdays and 9.45 and 11.30 a.m. on Sundays. Check out our middle school ministry at newspring.org slash The Wire. You can be part of something big when you give to NewSpring, and it's never been easier. If you want to give by using your smartphone, just use your browser to visit newspring.org slash mobilegive. You can also give using your mobile device by downloading the Secure Give app. Just type Secure Give in the search bar of your app store and download it for free. You can always give when you're on campus by using a credit or debit card at one of our kiosks located around the building. If you'd like to give from home, visit newspring.org slash give, where you can set up a one-time gift or an automatic recurring donation.
Well, good morning. So good to see you here this morning. We are in the middle of a series called Alone, and uh, we're really walking through the Old Testament book of Job. And um, just to be fairly honest with you at the outset, I got to tell you that Job is not my favorite book of the Bible to read. As a matter of fact, Job messes with my system a little bit because um, I, I'm kind of a cause and effect junkie. I don't know if there are any others of those in this room, but I, I really prefer uh, in life to be able to draw a straight line between where I'm at uh, and actions that I've taken that have gotten me where I'm at. Like I like to, you know, we talked a little bit about this in a previous message when we talked about destinations and paths. Um, and a lot of times life works that way. We take specific paths and they take us to a destination. Even though I've gotten to some destinations in my life that I didn't particularly love, whenever I've been able to draw a straight line between the path I was on and the destination I arrived at, at least life made sense to me. But you know and I know that sometimes in life there are moments when it doesn't really work that way. There are moments when we end up at destinations or um, maybe we might say we end up at moments of pain or difficulty that there really is no way to draw a straight line between our actions earlier in our life or anything that we've done to where we're at. And those moments can be very bewildering because just trying to make sense of it is a real struggle. And that's a lot of what we find uh, when we look at the book of Job. Like I said, it's why it's a little difficult for me when I read it because I would love to believe that if you follow God, um, you'll always be healthy, you'll always be financially well off, um, nothing bad will happen to people that you love, um, and, and it would be nice if things worked that way, but I think we all know and I have experienced the different moments in our life that even when we follow God, we can go through moments of difficulty. And so that's what we're talking about um, this morning, and, and what I would like to do is just kind of get us caught up, because it could be that uh, you weren't able to be here last week, uh, and so uh, I, I want to make sure that we're all on the same uh, page in terms of the story that we're covering, and uh, uh, if you were here last week, no worries, this is just going to be kind of a Google Earth flyover here, um, just to kind of talk about the story to get us to this point, right? So the Bible talks to us about Job and his character, and the Bible says that Job was both the richest man uh, in the world at his time frame, and also the best man, right? So Job, Job was very rich, as a matter of fact, and I think it's kind of tough for us uh, in 21st century America to read about Job's wealth and to really have it connect with us, because we think of wealth in terms of dollars and cents, and so you open the pages of Job, and uh, you read about um, donkeys and oxen and sheep and so forth, and kind of hard to make the parallel, but if it helps at all, uh, if you were to only take Job's oxen, just, just that part of his resources, there are scholars who estimate that conservatively, uh, uh, you know, a figure we could place on them at this point in time would be right around $5 million. Uh, so the guy had a lot of uh, resources at his disposal, but think about this. God said he was the best man on all the earth. Now, if you have a friend who would say you're the best guy in the world. That's pretty awesome, right? If your kids would say you're the best guy in the world, that's exceptional, right? And if you could get a group of people together that would agree that you're the best person in the world, well, that would be extremely unusual. But to have God say that you're the best person on the earth, that, I think that truly is priceless. I don't know how you could put a price tag on that, but that's what God said about Job. So, the Bible says that God really blessed Job. We talked a little bit last week about the fence of protection that God put around Job and the fact that Job had lots of blessings, not just financial. He had an incredible family. He felt very blessed by his kids. 
And so he had a, a lot of wonderful things going on in his life. But then the Bible tells us that he did hit that crisis moment that we're all familiar with. I mean, Job is one of those Bible stories that you don't have to give a lot of background to the average American because we all know that, biblically speaking, Job went through this major time of crisis. So what happens is Job is going about his normal daily stuff, and there are a group of messengers who come in to give him bad news. The Bible says that one messenger would come in and give him terrible news, and the Bible says as he was still speaking, the next would come in to give him terrible news. And as that one was still speaking, the next would come in to give him terrible news. I don't know if you've ever had a line of people waiting to talk to you. Sometimes I'll, I'll do a, a, a funeral or something like that, and there'll be a queue of people who want to say something to me before they leave. Um, but can you imagine having a line of people waiting to talk to you to give you this kind of news, right? The first messenger comes in and says, your, your donkeys and your oxen were stolen by another people group. They came in and raided, uh, and took, took away those animals, and then killed your farmhands. And, and while he was finishing talking, he said, by the way, I'm the only one who made it. I'm the only one who escaped to let you know what happened. While he's still talking, the next servant comes and says, you know, your, your, the lightning came down from heaven, and it burned up your sheep and killed your shepherds, and uh, I'm the only one who made it back to let you know what happened. And then while he was still talking, another servant comes and says, your camels have been stolen by another people group, and they killed the, ten the people tending to the camels, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then the last messenger came in and said, Job, I hate to tell you this, but a tornado hit the house where your kids were, and it killed all your kids. One moment, one moment in time, and Job lost everything that he had. And then it wasn't too long before Job got really sick. The Bible says that from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was covered in sores. He was covered in, in boils. He couldn't live in his house anymore. At the risk of being less than genteel, he stunk. And his wife didn't want to be around him. He had to move away from his house. He Basically, the Bible tells us he ended up sitting on an ash pile. That was his daily reality of life. And he couldn't get any relief from the pain of the sores, and so he would take a broken piece of pottery and scrape himself. It was the only way he could get any kind of relief. It was a terrible existence. And so I think all of us can relate to wondering what it must have felt like for Job to be sitting there and thinking, why am I here? Why am I on the ash pile? Why do I not have all the things, all the blessings that God gave me? What does this mean about me and God? What, what does this mean about our relationship? And if you were here last week, you know that there's a backstory behind what happened to Job that Job would never know about. Nobody's ever going to come and explain all this to Job, but behind the scenes, the Bible says there was a dialogue between God and Satan. Now, we don't know exactly how all this works, but the Bible tells us that at some point, Satan was able to come into God's court. And uh, so Satan comes to God to accuse people of wrongdoing. The Bible calls Satan Diabolos, the one who throws accusations, the one who hurls accusations. So he came before God to accuse people of doing things wrong. And yet, God wanted to talk about Job. And God said to Satan, have you paid attention to Job? He's a man of complete integrity. He fears God. And, and he follows me. It wouldn't, forgive me for bringing a sense. Wouldn't you love to have God be able to use you as an example to Satan about how wrong he is? My character is not at that point. I'm not there. But I, I think that must have been really cool for God to be able to say, hey, by the way, have you seen this guy? Because he, he totally is following me. What do you have to say about that? Well, Satan always has an answer. And he said, well, I tell you, the reason that he's doing, the reason he's following you is because you've spoiled him. 
You've given him everything he wants. How would, why would he not? You've given him all kinds of financial wherewithal. You've given him all kinds of blessings. And then on top of that, you've put the sort of fence thing around him. I can't get at him. You won't let me get anywhere close to him. So of course he follows you. But I tell you what, you take that stuff away from him and he'll turn his back on you. And so God said, okay, you can test him. You just can't hurt him. You can't hurt his body, but you can take away his stuff. So that's exactly what Satan did. That's why all of a sudden he didn't have any donkeys or oxen or sheep or shepherds. And that's why Satan sent a tornado to kill his kids. And yet the Bible says that Job worshipped God. He still said, I'm going to find a way to say something good about God even after I've lost all these things. So then part two of this deal, Satan comes back to God and God says to Satan, Hey, have you noticed Job? is still following me. Job is still saying good things about me. You said, you remember? You said if I, took away, if, if I let you take away his stuff, that he would turn his back on me, but it doesn't really look like that's the way it's happening, does it? And Satan says, well, skin for skin, you wouldn't let me touch his body. Apparently, he's more concerned about himself than his stuff. Okay, tell you what, you give me permission to touch his body to make him sick, and then he'll turn his back on you. So God said, okay. You, you, can, you, you can make him sick, you just can't kill him. So that's why the boils from top of the head to the bottom of the foot. And you begin to see there is this incredible, there's this incredible backstory. God is using Job to prove to Satan that the rest of the world doesn't think the way he thinks. That there are people that truly want to follow God. Job doesn't know that. All Job knows is he's lost everything. Maybe you've been through a moment in your life where you feel like you've lost everything. And on top of all that, specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that we're talking about this week is what it felt like for Job to be alone. That's what the series is based off of. How many of us in this room, we understand that God did not design us to be alone. We're not wired that way, right? Isolation is not good for us. As a matter of fact, it amazes me that there are people that research this kind of thing, but there are people that have researched the different methods that people have used to torture or to break down people that were prisoners of war or uh, had been taken captive, and this is what they found. <clears throat> they found that one of the primary ways, in fact, maybe the way of breaking people down is to isolate them. More powerful than physically harming somebody is putting them in a position where they're away from anybody who might be there for them, Right? And so what happens is here you have Job, and, and he has been pulled away from the people that would be there for him. His wife has basically turned her back on him, and, and nobody ought to come down too hard on Job's wife because she'd been through so much as well. But she said, you know, why don't you just go ahead and give up on God and commit suicide? Be done with it. Now he's really by himself, and he's alone. So we're going to talk a little bit about, actually today we're going to press the pause button on that moment on the ash pile, we're going to find some truths that will be helpful for you if you find yourself at a moment when you're truly alone, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. What I would like to do is I'd like to file a, a flight plan with you about the book of Job and how we're going to approach it in the rest of uh, this series, okay? Job is a book that is 42 chapters long, right? Uh, and the first two chapters are about Job's crisis, about all the things that he lost how he made it to the ash pile. The next 35 chapters are a very long, drawn-out conversation between Job and three friends who came to help him, right? 
help in quotation marks, right? I've, I've said in a previous series, this, this, uh, the book of Job could be just described as one poor guy going through the worst situation ever and three of the worst grief counselors ever, right? This, if you want to know who not to listen to when you're going through a difficult time, open up the pages of the book of Job. If anything looks similar, then that tells you what you're dealing with, right? The next four chapters of the book after that are God responding directly to Job. And then the last chapter of the book is God restoring Job, giving back to him what he lost times two, right? Um, so if we, what, what I would like to do is specifically just stop at this point before Job's friends come into the picture as Job sits on the ash pile and talk about what it must have been like for him. And anybody in this room, do you like graphs? Anybody in this room, you're like me, you like graphs and charts? It's only a few of us, so we could probably start a small group. We'll meet in the foyer. We'll check out some charts. We'll have a good time. So um, I do. I like, I like charts and graphs. And if, um, if we were to take Job's life and do a nice little line graph out uh, with his life and start at the beginning and then just as Job gets blessed, as he has good things happen to him, we just kind of move the scale up a little bit, right? So Job starts off in life. He has things going well. His childhood is good. And as he's growing up, things are good. And then he meets this gal. She's really sweet. And they get married. And then they have kids. And, and, and then God continues to give him financial blessing. And things keep moving up. And, and he just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And his trajectory is better than anybody else's trajectory that is around. And, he's, and, and it's almost like when, when you have this kind of trajectory in life, it feels like God is taking you somewhere. I don't know if you've experienced that, but as you go up the line, it's like, wow, God is really just building this up for something. We're headed somewhere. Something really awesome is going to happen. You feel like God is taking you somewhere. And then you hit a moment like what Job hit, where all of a sudden everything kind of comes tumbling down, and you find yourself at the bottom of the chart. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. Sometimes it's kind of like we find ourselves asking, did, did God bring me here to leave me here? See, that's what being abandoned is. That's the, the title of this message is abandoned. Abandonment is when somebody brings you somewhere to leave you somewhere. And sometimes in life, by the way, I think all of us know at some point in life, all of us will go through a crisis, right? Statistically speaking, all of us will hit that wall at some point. And so I think the, the question is, when you hit a crisis and you go through a season of blessing and then you find yourself at the bottom of the graph, does that mean that God has brought you somewhere to leave you there? And why would he do that? So what I want to do is just talk about that because frankly, and I don't know if you're like me, but one of the areas in which I struggle is sometimes I tend to look at that line graph and I tend to think that where I'm at on that graph is a commentary on how God feels about me and where I stand with him. Certainly, as you'll learn next week, Job's friends thought that was certainly the case, right? But I see myself right here and I think, you know, okay, God is really blessing me, so God must feel good about me and I must be doing okay by God. But then when you find yourself at the bottom of the graph, it kind of makes you go, where, where do I stand? For some of you in this room, you know what it feels like to hit the bottom of the graph. You know what it feels like to be abandoned. Maybe as you were growing up, you experienced some sort of abandonment with your parents. Maybe they were still physically there. But we all know that sometimes parents emotionally check out. Maybe you experienced that. Or maybe you were in a marriage where the other person decided they didn't want to be there anymore and so they walked out. Or maybe you experienced abandonment at your, at your job and the occupation. You thought you were going to work for this company forever and you walked in and found out that you didn't have a job anymore, right? 
And it's that feeling that, wow, God has really blessed me, and now here I am. Why did he bless me up to this point? Look at Job 3.23. Job says, why is life given to those with no future? Do you hear the words Job saying, why, why did you give me life and things would be going really well, and then all of a sudden I have no future? Or look at this, Job 10 in verse 12. You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love. My life was preserved by your care. Yet your real motive, your true intent was to watch me, and if I sinned, you would not forgive my guilt. Why then did you deliver me from my mother's womb? Why didn't you let me die at birth? I long for the years gone by when God took care of me, when he lit up the way before me, and I walked safely through the darkness. When I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. The Almighty was still with me. Notice the implication there that now God is not with him. And my children were around me. I thought, surely I will die surrounded by my family after a good long life. Now my life seeps away. Depression haunts my days. I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I look to the south, but he is concealed. My relatives stay far away, and my friends have turned against me. My family's gone. My close friends have forgotten me. My servants and maids consider me a stranger. I'm like a foreigner to them. When I call my servant, he doesn't come. I have to plead with him. My breath is repulsive to my wife, and I'm rejected by my own family. Even young children despise me. When I stand to speak, they turn their backs on me. My close friends detest me, and those I've loved have turned against me. It's as though Job is saying, I don't understand. Why does God give life to someone with no future? Why did God give me those great kids? I don't understand. Why, why would I have those great kids? Because now I miss those great kids. I don't get to look forward to talking to them because I can't talk to them because they're gone. God gave me resources and I remember what life was like with resources and now I miss having those resources. Why did God give them to me to take them away from me? I don't understand. It is as though a person saying, God, I thought you were taking me somewhere. I thought we were headed somewhere. I thought you, were, you had a plan in mind, but now I'm stuck here at the bottom of the graph. What's going on? In our time together, this morning, the easiest thing for me to do would be to turn to the back of Job, the last chapter. Go to Job chapter 42 and say, let me explain to you, when you feel like you're at the bottom of the graph and when you feel like maybe God has left the building and you feel maybe God brought me here to leave me here, let me tell you how God fixed it for Job. Let me show you how God made it right by Job at the end of the book. Let me show you how God restored Job. And that would be an interesting way to approach it. Certainly would be the easy way. But there's two problems with that. Number one is there's a lot of great content we need to cover between here and there. That's why we have two more weeks in the series, right? But the other one is this. That might not be what you need today. If you're really going through a crisis moment, you don't need platitudes from me. You don't need someone else's story. As wonderful as Job's story is, you probably don't need someone else's story because God will not restore you the way he restored someone else. He will restore you differently. And you don't need promises from someone who can't keep those promises. What you need is reassurance that you serve a God who would not bring you somewhere to leave you somewhere. You need something to hold on to. 
That's what Job's friends would have been well advised to have brought to him, would have been something to hold on to to say, look, just so you know, God will not bring you somewhere to leave you somewhere. That is not how he operates. God is still with you, even in the middle of a dark circumstance. See, because we cannot physically see God and we cannot have an audible conversation with God, we don't have the ability to go to God and say, I just need you to go ahead and give me the affirmative across the radio that you're still there. We don't have that ability. We have to have faith. We have to have trust. We have to be able to believe that God is still there and God still has our best interest at heart. So what I would like to do in the time that we have left this morning is to share with you just a few things that you can write down, you can keep track of. These are things that will help remind you in the middle of a crisis that God has not left. He's still with you and he wants to help you through what you're going through. All right, here's the first one and that is this. God is more relational than you are. God would not abandon you because God is more relational than you are. See, I'm a relational person. I love relationships. And, and, and you probably are like this as well. You don't like to see people break up. You certainly don't like to be in a relationship that breaks up. We, I've never met a person who just loves to see relationships break apart because we're relational people. We want those relationships to stay together. We want people to have healthy relationships. That, that actually makes us tick right? We, I, was, I mentioned the last two services. I have two little girls, right? And, and we have these little games we play as I, as I leave the house in the morning. We say goodbye to one another and see who can get the last goodbye in before the door shuts, you know? And, and you don't listen to that, and you might think it's cute, but you don't listen to that and go, Jonathan, you really have some sort of, you know, pathology that needs to get diagnosed here. There's something wrong with you because you would say, no, that's just normal. A dad and his daughters, that's, you're relational. All of us are relational. And yet, God is so much more relational than we ever think about being. You think you don't want to have a breakup between you and God. You'll be amazed to know how much God does not want to have a breakup between you and him. You say, well, Jonathan, how, 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 how do you know that God is relational the way you say he is? Well, go back to Genesis, right? And read as God creates the world in which we live, right? Now, I'm not a science person, but I did pass college biology, barely, right? And I understand, I, I, don't under, I don't understand all the details of the complexity of the world that we live in, and I sure can't tell you why they work the way they do, but I do know this, I know that our universe is infinitely complex. I understand the building block uh, the basic building block of life, the cell, is so complicated we still don't really understand everything about it. But here's what I want to tell you. The reason that God, what inspired God to create all of that complexity, what inspired God to put all that in place was he wanted to have a relationship. God created the world in which we live so that he could put human beings on it. And he put human beings on the world in which we live so that he could have a relationship with them. God was so relational he went to the trouble to design the universe in which we live as a way of providing an environment for that relationship. You say, well, Jonathan, that's, that's kind of an abstract argument. You got anything more concrete than that? Well, let's look in Romans 8. Let's go to the New Testament for a second. In Romans 8, the Bible says this. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he did what? When he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, or Daddy. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his 
heirs. Important word, we'll come back to this in a second. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And now hang with me for a second, because this is important. How, how many of, of you in this room are world history fans? You like studying world history, right? Okay, I'll pray for you. How many? Um, I see that hand, okay. Um, I flunked world history, but that's beside the point. Um, if you study world history or if you've studied the scriptures through the Bible, you understand that there are kings and emperors and rulers throughout the history of the world who have done terrible things to members of their family to make sure that they weren't th- their throne was not threatened. Legitimate heirs to thrones have been killed, banished, done away with, all sorts of terrible things. Why? Well, because there is kind of a sad thing about the human race, and that is that sometimes our desire, the things that we want in life, our desires, trump our relational nature. Have you ever noticed that sometimes, even though we're relational people, we don't act very relational if we think we're getting ready to lose something that we really want? But the Bible just said that God created this world in which we live in order to bring about new heirs to God's inheritance, to join to the family. Think about how not paranoid God is and how much God wants to be in a relationship that God was not looking to get rid of heirs. God created heirs and brought them into the family. That is how relational God is. Do you know what that tells me? I said a second ago, sometimes our desires trump our relational nature. It tells me that God's desire is a relationship. That is the way he works. Let me read you this verse in Matthew 7. This is Jesus speaking. He said, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, or probably the best rendering of that phrase would be, if you people who have sin natures know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Right, so uh, Jesus says, you know, if, uh, uh, if one of your kids comes up and says, you know, can I have a piece of bread, you give them a boulder, here, go gnaw on that for a little while, see how that works for you, right? He said, you wouldn't do that. That's inconsistent with all the parents that Jesus was talking to at that moment. He said, no, you, you want to give good gifts to your children. But here's what, here's what Jesus was saying, this is so powerful. Take all the good that is in you, relationally speaking, okay? So husbands, everything good you have done in your marriage for your wife. Wives, everything good you have done in your marriage for your husband. Uh, Everything good you have done for your kids. All that is within you relationally that's good. The the fact that you mentor people at work. The fact that you want to see people do well. The fact that you, you, you try to make a difference in this world. You volunteer at New Spring. All those things that are good relationally in you. Subtract From that, the sin nature that you have. Subtract the bad that you do relationally. And then take that picture and realize that it is a microcosm of the good that is in God that he wants to do in his relationship with you. Because God does not have a sin nature. And even the good that you're able to do relationally can only be a fraction of what God wants to do for you. See, God is more relational than you are. See, we're so worried. Sometimes we struggle to understand the nature of God. Would God walk away from me just because he gets bored with me or because I'm not exceptional, exceptional enough or because I do something that makes him mad? Is, is God going to work that way? I hope what I'm saying is enough to adequately persuade you that the last thing God wants to do is to walk away from you. Here's the second thing. The second thing is this. Leaving is not God's style. It's just not, Right? And, 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 and let me give you an axiom for life. If you're taking notes, here's, here's a good one to write down. It's just a real simple life axiom. And that is that God never moves away from someone who's moving towards him. Never, ever, 
ever, ever does God move away from someone moving towards him. Look at this, James 4, 8. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Pretty simple. Now think about this. Job has been going through this positive trajectory. He hits the crisis moment, goes down to the bottom of the grid, and yet he is not trying to walk away from God. And, you know, forgive me for breaking a sentence. You might say, now, Jonathan, wait a minute. You keep talking about how the fact that God, God is not going to abandon me, but yet I've read the Old Testament, and I've read some places where God said he was going to abandon a specific people group, or he said, I'm going to abandon this person. And, and, and maybe a verse like Second Chronicles uh, 15 is, is one that you're thinking about. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Well, let me, just, let me just say that this is just a very basic principle in relationships, right? And that is, if somebody walks away from you, you get two choices. You can either stand your ground and be who you are, or you can go chase them, right? Chasing them is not a healthy relational thing to do. And God is a gentleman. He will not chase you. So the way that relationships work with God is this. If you walk away from God intentionally, he will not chase you. But if you take any step toward God, he will make tracks toward you. So here's the thing, if you meet a Job, if maybe either, even if it's not you going through a crisis moment at this point in time, maybe it's a friend of yours or somebody that you know, a family member, and they've been having this trajectory, they hit the crisis, they're at the bottom of the graph, but they are seeking God and they want to understand, they want God to be there, and they're, they're praying to God, God help me through this, here's what they need to know, God has not left the building. The closer they work to get to God, the closer God is working to be to them. 1 Samuel 12, says this, The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name. When we read the Old Testament, it's important to recognize that when we talk about doing something in someone's name uh, or bringing honor to someone's name or dishonoring someone's name, the word name in the Old Testament is synonymous with character. As a matter of fact, it really does mean that. So what the Bible is saying is it would fall short of God's character to leave one of his kids. You know, it... If I were to ask you in a moment of deep sanity, not, you know, when you're at Disney World, I would ask you, would you leave your kids? Well, I don't know. I'm in this line, and I'm starting to, sanity's leaving my cortex at the moment. But, um, but and if I was to catch you in a moment of, of, of complete sanity, everything is normal, and I say to you, would you ever just walk away from your kids? You'd say, no, never in a million years. I'd never do that. Well, why? Because I love my kids. Okay, well, why would you not walk away from the kids you love? Well, I, I just couldn't do that. That's, that's not the kind of person that I am. I, 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 it, it just would violate who I am as a human being. Absolutely. That's so true. Now, we go to 1 Samuel. The Bible says it would dishonor God's character to walk away from his kids. What it's saying is take that feeling that you have inside that says I could never do that, multiply it by a million, and now you have a God, you, you begin to have an understanding of a God who says it would just be so against who I am as a person, the, the person of God, to walk away from one of my children. It just wouldn't be consistent with who I am. I'll give you the last thought because we really need to finish up here. God will not abandon you because he's on record as being willing to pay any price to not have to abandon you. You think about this. If ever there was an excuse to walk away from us, it would have been when God was going to have to intervene to be able to make a future in heaven for us. I mean, because man had gone off and done his own thing, now there was a sin debt to be paid. And the only way for that sin debt to be paid was for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And it is as though God Almighty has the choice. 
I can either walk away, and that won't cost me anything, or I can stay. I can stick around. I can still be part of this relationship. And the way that I can stay, the price tag for staying, was to send his son to die on the cross a criminal's death. And as though God says, okay, if that is the price, then I'll pay it. See, some of you in this room, you just need some encouragement that God would not walk away from you. And I just want to take you back to the cross and say, he was willing to do that for you. He will stick around. He has not left the building. If, if Jesus would go to the cross for you, he's not going to leave because your situation at work intimidates him. He's not going to leave because you're just not exceptional enough. He's not going to leave because you're not having the success that you feel like you have, to, you have to have or somehow there's a feeling of not being worthwhile inside. I'm telling you, none of those things are going to keep him away from you. If he's willing to die on the cross for you, he's going to stick around. And so I just take that as a moment to say, look, be encouraged because God is for you. Okay, well, so, but, but what about the line, Jonathan? I, I'm not really enjoying living life on the ash pile like Job is. It's not really cool. I don't like being at the bottom of the graph. What is God going to do about this? Well, I told you I wasn't going to use Job's restoration as an example because yours will be different. But I'd like to finish up by reading this verse, Philippians 1.6. It's a verse many of us have committed to memory. It says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you. He started the trajectory. It was going up. I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished. Now, when does he say it's going to be finished? Does he say it's going to be finished at the end of your life? Right? You know, I, I, I serve a ministry. That's my job full time. So maybe God says, I will continue the good work that I started in you until you retire. Or maybe I will continue the good work I started within you until your kids grow up and move away from home, right? No, what does he say? He said, I'll continue the good work I started in you until Jesus Christ comes back. Now think about this. I would love to be on this earth when Jesus Christ comes back. That would be the coolest thing in the world. And yet, this same scripture was written to generations of people whose lives ended before Jesus came back. Now, here's what I want you to think about. God is saying that line doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. Until Jesus Christ comes back, it keeps moving. So, so what, what God is saying is, look, you may feel like you're totally at the bottom of the graph, but do you know what happens when you zoom way out from a graph? Somebody in here who's really, you do computers, you realize you zoom way out from a graph and something that looks like an absolute bottom of the graph crisis looks like what? Just a little bobble, right? And God's saying, look, this thing is going to go until Jesus Christ comes back. And it, it may look to you like bottom of the page, but to me it looks like a little bobble and we're going to get you back up there because I'm going to keep pushing this thing forward. And by the way, I did bring you here to take you somewhere. Think, think about the fact that God has not given you. I want you to inventory for a moment, and I'm already into overtime. I want you to inventory all the blessings that God has given you. Some of them you feel like you don't still have. I want you to inventory all the blessings God has given you, and I want you to think about the fact that God doesn't waste one of those. God would not give you a blessing to waste it. He's going to do something with it. Even if you don't have that in your life anymore, that line continues on to Jesus Christ comes back, and he has a purpose and a plan for your life. Let me read this to you and then we'll be done. Job 19, 13 through 19. I read the first part of this passage to you a moment ago. I'd like to read the whole passage here. My relatives stay far away. My friends have turned against me. My family is gone and my close friends have forgotten me. My servants and maids consider me a stranger. I'm like a foreigner to them. 
When I call my servant, he doesn't come. I have to plead with him. My breath is repulsive to my wife, and I'm rejected by my own family. Even young children despise me. When I stand to speak, they turn their backs on me. My close friends detest me. Those I loved have turned against me. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. That may be all you have to hold on to right now. Maybe what you can say, you can say with Job, maybe you could list all the things that aren't working out right now. Maybe you could give a list of how the graph took such a sour turn for you, but at the end you could say, but I know my Redeemer lives. I know that my God is still there, and I know that he has not left the building. I'm going to get close to him. I know he's going to be close to me. And I may not feel exactly how this is going to work out, but this is what I do know. I know God would never abandon me. And I hope as you leave this morning, there is something within you that really resonates with that and says, you know what, even if I had a crisis, I know God would never leave me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for reminding us that you love us and that you never leave. You stay with us. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. I'm in overtime, but I want to do this because I think it's important. If you're in this room and you'd say, Jonathan, I'm going through my very own personal crisis right now and it's not cool. This message was for me this morning because I'm really struggling. And I, Jonathan, I'd like to have you just pray for me in the crisis that I'm going through. Would you just raise your hand in this room? Nobody's looking around. I'm going to pray for every hand raised. And I have hands coming up all over the room. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for every hand that's raised. I pray for every specific situation, every crisis. Because you know all the details. You know exactly what's happening and you understand what the ultimate disposition is going to be. You see the whole line. But it's tough when all we see is right now. So I pray for each individual going through crisis that you would grant them peace and comfort and wisdom. The ability to know how to take one step at a time as they move forward. In Jesus' name. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. One more moment. If you'd say, you know what, Jonathan, I'm in this room. And as you talked about Jesus Christ paying the price so that I could have a relationship with him, I would like to have that. I would like to have a relationship with God. How could I do that? Well, I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And if, you, if, you, if what I'm getting ready to say really reflects what's happening in your heart, you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you do, it will be settled once and for all, and you'll have a relationship with him. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you've never left me. I believe that you died for the things I've done wrong. I believe you rose again and now you live. I place my trust in only you. I ask you to forgive me for the things I've done wrong and to make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look this way. If you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. We prepared a packet of materials we want to give you. If you take that Talk to Us card, just fill it out and take it to guest services. We have something we'd like to give you just to get you started in your relationship with Christ. Thank you so much for being here this week. Next week we talk about being misunderstood.